On the 5th of November 1605, Guy Fawkes was found in the cellar of the House of Lords in Westminster with enough gunpowder to blow up the whole Parliament. Or maybe he wasn't. That was the story told by the government at the time, but there are more than enough reasons not to believe a word they said. What on earth was going on at the court of James I? To begin to unravel the story, we have to go to Spain. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. It's May 1603, more than two years before Guy Fawkes was, or perhaps was not, found under Parliament with gunpowder and a match, or maybe neither. The young King of Spain, Philip III, is at his new royal palace in Valladolid in northwestern Spain. Two Englishmen have turned up to see him. England and Spain have been at war since 1585, and just talking to the Spanish king is treason. One of the English calls himself Anthony Dutton. The other had once been a well-to-do Protestant from York, then he'd become a Catholic, and at 21 turned his back on England. By 1603, this red-haired mercenary had been fighting for Spain in the Netherlands for 14 years, and speaks both French and Spanish. And these days, he uses the Spanish version of his name. He's no longer Guy Fawkes, but Guido Fawkes. As we discovered at our last History Café, pretty much none of the English documents to do with the gunpowder plot can be taken at face value. But here, in Valladolid, we are using Spanish sources, a long way away from the English court and its intrigues. So we're on much safer ground. Fawkes and Dutton were not the first Englishmen to commit treason by trying to negotiate with the Spanish. A man called Thomas Winter had spent several months in Spain in 1601. He had negotiated with the Spanish, hoping to get money to support an English Catholic rising a rebellion to end the penalties imposed on them for being Catholics by the Protestant English government. Winter had also hoped the Spanish would send a fleet. Now, it was only 13 years since the disastrous Spanish Armada, which we'll talk about at another history cafe, but there seems no doubt that in 1601, the Spanish king, Philip III, was seriously thinking about dispatching a new, as he called it, impresa, or mission, to persuade England to get out of Spain's war with the Dutch and to be more tolerant to English Catholics. Just as last time, with what we call the Armada, they would bring Spanish soldiers down from the Netherlands and they would link up with the English Catholic rebels. Winter undertook to provide a 1,000 or 1,500 horses in England since horses were difficult to transport by sea. Meanwhile, the Spanish would back a long-running rebellion in Ireland so that they could tie up a large proportion of England's meagre defences. Now, the plan this time, as indeed it was the same in 1588, whatever you may hear elsewhere, was not to assassinate or depose Queen Elizabeth, but to wait for her death, which since, in 1601, she was already 65, couldn't be far away. They would then put the Spanish princess, or infanta, Isabella, on the throne, or more likely get the English Parliament to choose a sympathetic alternative. The Spanish Treasury promised 100,000 escudos to the English Catholics to start making preparations. Well, that's about 6 million in today's money. Not a fortune, but a decent start. 
But of course, the invasion never happened. Spain was in the middle of a climate crisis with poor harvests and outbreaks of plague. Treasury was empty. Philip's military strategists also had doubts about the feasibility of the plan. So nothing happened. And when Elizabeth eventually died on the 24th of March 1603, the Protestant James I, who'd been King of Scotland before, quietly came to the throne and the Spanish decided to work with him. Within days, the Irish rebellion was also finally put down. So that's why, within weeks of Elizabeth's death, Dutton and Fawkes had shown up in Valladolid. They were trying with some desperation to persuade the Spanish that they couldn't trust the new Protestant King James and that the rebellion and the Empressa, the invasion, still had to go ahead. This time it was Dutton who was promising to raise horses, 2,000 of them. Fawkes claimed to have letters from England that proved James was widely unpopular and a rising would have plenty of support. The two men got a cool reception in Spain. The Pope, Clement VIII, was telling everyone to calm down and wait for the outcome of peace negotiations to end the long war between England and Spain. The Spanish Council was taking a hard look at their finances and deciding that they had neither the cash nor the forces for an invasion. The Spanish ambassador in England was sending reports that suggested the English Catholics wouldn't give an invasion any significant military backing. And he was right. English Catholics never showed any general desire to rebel against the English crown. Anyway, the last thing the Spanish wanted at this moment was English Catholics stirring up trouble, just when they were preparing to negotiate peace terms with the English. So instead of offering Dutton and Fawkes any help, the Spanish put them under house arrest. Letters arrived from Thomas Winter back in England, saying that he and the other English Catholics were still spending the money the Spanish had promised back in 1601. In fact, they'd already spent three times what the Spanish had offered. Winter sounded desperate. The Spanish must get on and send their impresa, because the English Catholics were up in arms, and he wrote, can't be restrained much longer. But the Spanish weren't impressed. In February 1604, the Spanish Council took the decision not even to pay the 100,000 escudos they'd originally promised, which the English Catholics had already spent. The Spanish priority was peace. The English government always claimed that Dutton was really another of the gunpowder plotters, a man called Kit Wright travelling under a false name, although there's no other evidence either way. So does the fact that Anthony Dutton and Guy Fawkes went to Spain in 1603 prove that the gunpowder plot was as the government said it was? Well, we don't think so. What it shows is that until 1603 anyway, there was a small group of English Catholics, apparently without much support from their co-religionists, who were actively preparing a rising and prepared to commit treason by trying to raise support from England's Spanish enemies. Treason was definitely in the air, but what the rebellion would actually look like, we don't yet know. And as we shall see, that is a crucial distinction. By the spring of 1604, long-laid plans for an English Catholic rising with a Spanish invasion had collapsed. The Spanish were much more interested in signing a peace treaty with King James of England than with another attempted invasion that was very unlikely to succeed. The long war with England was going nowhere and they couldn't afford to keep fighting it. Well, pretty much every book and website on the gunpowder plot 
will tell you that some among the English Catholics now decided that the only way to get rid of their new Protestant king was to do it themselves. So, we're told, on Sunday the 20th of May 1604, five Catholic men, Guido Fawkes, Thomas Winter, Robin Catesby, Thomas Percy and John Wright, met at a pub off the Strand called the Duck and Drake. There, after making the others take an oath of secrecy and attend Mass in another room with the Jesuit priest Father Gerard, Catesby proposed the plan to ignite gunpowder under the House of Lords. They would blow King and Parliament into Kingdom Come. When we began to think about the gunpowder plot, we kept running into brick walls. The problem is that the evidence always comes back to the same few sources, usually the King's Book and the Confessions of Fawkes and Winter that it contains. But as we saw at our last History Café, we can't take a word of those documents seriously. They appear to be outright government propaganda, conceived and created to prove the government's case, mostly using material gained through the most atrocious means of torture. So where's the evidence for this famous meeting at the Duck and Drake? Well, Fawkes and Winter's published confessions mention some kind of meeting, though the sign of the duck only turns up in the examination of another accused, who just says he stayed there in August 1605. The name of the priest comes from Fawkes' unpublished confession, supposedly given privately to Chief Minister Robert Cecil after four days in the tower. Well, we can't take any of this evidence seriously. At the opening of the trial on 27th of January 1606, the government's lawyers suddenly came out with a date that the plotters had met, 20th of May 1604, and declared that all the other men on trial had been at the Duck and Drake that day as well, not just the original five. Well, now the story goes that an unnumbered crowd of Jesuit priests mastermind the whole meeting and finish off by celebrating an illegal mass. None of these sources passes the simplest test of reliability get closer and they all fall apart. Take, for example, the Jesuit priest who Fawkes was supposed to have fingered in his private tete-a-tete with Cecil on the tower. He was Father John Gerard, not to be confused with the later Jesuit historian of the same name. And look a bit more closely. We discover that Gerard was a particular bête noire of Cecil's. He'd been in prison in the tower in 1597, strung up with manacles by the infamous torturer Richard Topcliffe. But then, amazingly, Gerard had escaped With his damaged hands, he'd inched along a rope his friends had somehow strung up from his cell over the tower wall and to a boat waiting at the wharf beyond. It had caused a sensation, and Gerard had been on the run ever since. And ever since, Robert Cecil had been looking for a way to nail him. Maybe Fawkes really did name Gerard as part of the plot, but maybe he didn't. We can't possibly know. Fawkes' confession, extracted by torture, proves nothing except that Cecil was still hunting for the man. Actually, Alice Hogg has shown that Robert Cecil was obsessed with persecuting the Jesuits. As the gunpowder plot investigation went on, he insistently tried to push its focus more and more onto them, even in the teeth of opposition from the king. In January 1606, wanted posters for particular Jesuits appeared, and on the very day the trial began, two Jesuit priests were at last arrested. So when the indictment was read out on the first day of the trial, it ostentatiously pointed at the Jesuits as the evil masterminds behind the whole thing. Of course, said Robert Cecil's government, the Jesuits had to have been at the Duck and Drake on the 20th of May, 1604, the day it all began. At this point at the History Café, we'll just reach across the table and take a large pinch of salt. So... 
the often recounted meeting at the Duck and Drake may or may not have happened, with or without Winter, Fawkes and the others who were arrested after the gunpowder plot, and with or without the whole committee of Jesuit priests Robert Cecil was later so anxious to implicate in the affair. There's no verifiable evidence for any of it. Even the vicious lieutenant of the tower, William Wade, whose long and completely unscrupulous history of procuring whatever evidence the government required we discussed in episode one of the gunpowder plot, even he, even Wade, couldn't produce a single witness who'd even seen any of the accused, priests or otherwise, except possibly the man called Thomas Percy, anywhere in Westminster at any time in the whole year of 1604. In fact, there's very good reason to believe that Catholic conspirators, and especially this group, would not have been plotting to blow the government up in May 1604. We just have to look around the room a bit. By far the Catholics' best hope of winning concessions from the government of King James and Robert Cecil were the peace talks between Spain and England. The Spanish might not be willing to launch an invasion, but we know that King Philip of Spain had been committed to negotiating a better deal for England's Catholics as part of their price for ending the war. In his instructions to his envoy to England back in 1603, Philip of Spain had written, quotes, Insists strongly on the liberty of conscience for Catholics. This is what I desire the most. Now, the peace talks between Spain and England were due formally to begin in May 1604, exactly when the Duck and Drake meeting is supposed to have taken place. As the English Catholics had already discovered, the Spanish were slippery, their desire to end an expensive war stronger than their concern for English toleration. But if a bunch of discontented Catholics really did meet at the Duck and Drake in May 1604, they would almost certainly not have been talking about blowing Parliament up when it was next due to meet, which was in fact in February 1605. After all, if things went well at the peace talks, Catholic grievances would by then just be an unpleasant memory. A meeting at the Duck and Drake, if it ever happened, would much more likely have been about how to make sure the Spanish did the decent thing when they sat down to negotiate with the English. So where does that leave us? All we know so far is that there were some English Catholics eager to start a rebellion in 1601 and then in 1603. And we know that the government arrested two of these men, Fawkes and Winter, after the gunpowder plot. But what happened in between, we don't yet know. The government tale about them planning in May 1604 to blow Parliament up the following February, when it next met, is supported by no independent evidence. Given the context of the peace talks just starting, it seems very unlikely. So let's turn the question round. As History Cafe historians, if we're in doubt about something we're being offered, what we find ourselves doing is taking a look at the packaging. Read the small print on the label. In other words, instead of asking just what happened, we need to look closer at the documents themselves. Instead of just asking what do the documents say about the events they describe, we should always first ask the much more important question, what did the documents tell us about the people who wrote them? Well, we know who wrote these documents. As we've seen, the evidence about the Duck and Drake meeting all comes from the government of Robert Cecil. So what does this story tell us about them? Why might the government want us to believe that the gunpowder plot began at a pub in May 1604? What does it tell us about Robert Cecil and his cronies? And when we ask that question, one detail about the story of the meeting at the Duck and Drake immediately jumps out. It's something none of the books notices, but it turns out to be the most telling detail of all. The exact date, 20th of May, 1604. 
Every modern account of the gunpowder plot begins with the plotters meeting at the Duck and Drake off the Strand in London on 20th of May 1604. There's absolutely no credible evidence that the meeting ever took place, and plenty to suggest that the government of Robert Cecil, at the very least, invented many of the details, including who was there, if not the whole meeting from beginning to end. But the most intriguing part of the whole tale is the date, 20th of May, 1604. The date was clearly very important to Robert Cecil and his government. The first time the date seems to be mentioned was in the government's opening indictment at the trial. In fact, they mentioned the date of this meeting five times during the indictment. The exact date apparently mattered very much to them. The question is, why? Well, one answer is easy to work out. In his instructions before the plotter's trial, Robert Cecil tells the Attorney-General that King James wants it made as clear as possible that the plot had not been hatched because of him or anything he'd done. As soon as he'd become king, he'd suspended the heavy fines the Catholics had faced since the second half of Elizabeth's reign. Then, as we shall see, in late 1604 and early 1605, he reversed that policy, dates incidentally that many books about the plot get muddled up about. We'll talk more about that later. But this means that it was important to push the beginning of the plot back as far as possible, certainly before the middle of 1604, to the days when James, in the hope of peace with Spain, was still being lenient to the Catholics and they had nothing to complain about. May 1604 would fit the bill nicely. If the plot began then, King James could not be to blame. But why the exact date, 20th of May 1604, which was apparently so important to the government? Well, here is a coincidence, just too important to overlook. If we study the journal of Levinus Monk, secretary to King James's chief minister, Robert Cecil, it was exactly on that day that a meeting took place just a few yards along the Strand from the Duck and Drake at Somerset House. It was the first formal session of the peace talks between the English and the Spanish. 20th of May 1604 was therefore an historic day, not because of the Catholic plotters, but because of what Robert Cecil was about to do. Historians regard Cecil as the chief English negotiator at the talks. Over the next three months, despite the fact that the other leading members of the English negotiating team were sympathetic to Catholics, and despite the generous bribe the Spanish had given Cecil, including a hefty pension for years to come, Cecil made it his business to block almost every one of the concessions the Spanish tried to negotiate for English Catholics. So for the English Catholics, the peace negotiations were a terrible letdown. And Robert Cecil was the man mainly to blame. So in retrospect, it would have been, shall we say, an extremely fortunate coincidence for Cecil if the gunpowder plot had begun on the 20th of May 1604, because that was just when Catholics should have been at their most optimistic about the prospects of a favourable peace treaty. It was before he began systematically crushing their hopes. If the plot had started that day rather than after the peace treaty was signed, it would prove that the plot was a result of evil, treasonous Catholic minds. It was certainly not Robert Cecil's fault any more than the King's. So the meeting at the Duck and Drake, rather than telling us anything credible about the plotters, keeps on pointing us back to Robert Cecil. He was the one who had a grudge against the Jesuits, who kept turning up in increasing numbers as the government accounts of the Duck and Drake meeting got written and rewritten. He was the one who had a score to settle in particular with the Jesuit father John Gerard, who'd escaped from the Tower of London and was now pictured in the pub as the leader. And it was Cecil who was the one who badly needed the plot to begin on the 20th of May 1604, at the very moment when the English Catholics ought to have been at their quietest and most hopeful, 
and before he had let them down so heavily. It's clearly time to pull up another chair and get to know this man, Robert Cecil. Who was Robert Cecil, James I's shadowy chief minister at the time of the gunpowder plot? Although he left plenty of papers, no historian has yet been able to face writing his biography. But it seems that we shall never get to grips with what was really going on in the gunpowder plot unless we try to understand him. As it happens, there is a painting of Cecil at the very peace conference we've been talking about that began at Somerset House on the 20th of May 1604. It's contemporary, although it's not historically accurate, because the various men pictured round the negotiating table in fact came and went at different times during the peace negotiations. But that doesn't matter much to us. After all, we're not looking for an accurate depiction of the scene, we're looking for what the painter was trying to tell us. He's painted 11 men sitting calmly around a table. On the left are two Spanish and four Dutch. We don't need to know any more about them. Sitting opposite them are five English men. Well, let's start with Lord Harry Howard, whom King James had made the Earl of Northampton as soon as he came to the throne. Earls are just below dukes at the very top of the English peerage. In the painting, the Earl of Northampton has a sheet of paper. As a former Cambridge don, he was a renowned, clever and well-informed speaker and would be presenting the English case with Cecil. Next to Northampton, there's Charles Blunt. He'd been the commander of the army that had recently put down the Irish rebellion the Spanish had been backing. He too was made an earl when James became king. He's the new Earl of Devonshire. Next to him is a third man recently made an earl, the Earl of Nottingham. He's in fact Harry Howard's cousin, Charles Howard. He'd been the admiral who'd famously defeated the Spanish Armada back in 1588. He's now 68, but he's just married an 18-year-old, one of the new king's Scottish relatives. Then there's Thomas Sackville, the Lord Treasurer. And yep, he was yet another new earl having become the Earl of Dorset. At the end of the row, closest to the viewer, sits Robert Cecil. He's effectively James's chief minister and is conducting most government business. He seems to be sharing the paper with the Earl of Northampton. But Cecil has not been made an Earl. Instead, he's rather pointedly picked up only the very much humbler title of Baron Cecil of Essendine. Unlike the four lofty Earls next to him, Cecil sits at the very lowest rung of the peerage. Well, anyway, although he's not an earl, Cecil looks relaxed enough in the painting. Uh, But then we have at least ten portraits of Cecil at various times in his life, and he always looks relaxed. Because when you look closely, you realise that that's because all ten portraits are exactly identical. Really identical. He's always sitting in exactly the same way, with exactly the same half-amused look. In fact, it's obvious that the ten portraits are all copied from the same pattern. Now... Maybe Cecil was just too busy for portraits, as artist or in Susan Bracken has suggested. But it's much more likely that he was extremely sensitive about his appearance. According to historian Pauline Croft, it may not have been pretty. At some point, Cecil had contracted scurvy and began to be covered in open, stinking sores. It also made his breath smell terrible. Back in 1600, someone had scratched, Here lieth the toad, over his door at court. Cecil was barely a metre and a half tall. Like King Richard III a hundred years before, he suffered from scoliosis, a very severely twisted spine, which gave him, Robert Cecil, a crooked back. 
At a time when people thought disability had come from some inward failing, Cecil was widely regarded with deep suspicion. During 1604, Shakespeare's play Richard III had suddenly become very popular, and Cecil must have known that the audiences laughing and booing at the wicked, hunchbacked King Richard were really making fun of him. Very much looks, therefore, as though Cecil airbrushed his image by creating a standard pattern that all portraitists had to follow, even for the official painting of the Somerset House Conference. It was, says Susan Bracken, an extremely unusual thing to do. But it was a trick Cecil could have learned from Queen Elizabeth, whose portraits also looked suspiciously alike, so that she never appeared older than 40. Of course Cecil couldn't help his appearance or his disability, and scurvy came from eating too much meat, which nobody understood then but it was his personality that made him so many enemies. His very own cousin, Francis Bacon, wrote to the king saying how much he hated him. And even the men he worked most closely with, the Attorney General Edward Cook, Chief Prosecutor at the Plotters' Trials, and the Earl of Northampton, who is sharing a paper with, in the painting, sitting next to him at Somerset House, put on record how much they detested him. In fact, however relaxed he looks in the painting, in May 1604... Cecil was so unrelaxed that he was even afraid to leave Westminster where he lived. The Spanish had quite reasonably requested the peace conference take place on neutral territory, perhaps in northern France. Cecil had refused point-blank. Instead, the conference was taking place right next door to his new house on the Strand. Now, historians agree that Cecil was the overworked heart of James's government. But it's important if we're to understand the gunpowder plot to realise just how unrelaxed he was. Cecil was a bundle of nerves for reasons we will go into. After all, Cecil had much more reason to feel insecure than being a mere baron at a table full of earls. Three of the four other Englishmen at the table had extremely good reason to distrust him, and more important, extremely good reason to think that King James was on their side and not Cecil's. Robert Cecil was the man at the centre of the gunpowder plot inquiry. In the course of his lifetime, he had a series of aristocratic titles, but we'll stick to calling him Robert Cecil to keep things simple. What we've already seen is enough to persuade us not only that he could have a somewhat distant relationship with the truth, but also that he was not in a good place in 1604 and 1605. And when he sat down to start the key negotiations with the Spanish on the 20th of May 1604, he had to share the table with three of the people he had least reason to trust in the whole kingdom. To unscramble all of this, we have to dig even deeper. And if it seems to you as if we're doing our history backwards, tell yourself that we are, as good historians, trying to understand the discourses that lie behind the gunpowder plot. We're unpacking the zeitgeist, the thoughts and ideas that were in the air at the time. Since we have virtually no reliable documents about the plot itself, it's our best hope. And believe me, the results in the end are going to be amazing. In 1987, a young historian called Gwyneth Hudson submitted a thesis for the Oxford degree of M. Lit. It's never been published, but Hudson's analysis is gold dust. It concerns the fate of the men who'd been caught up in a rising led by the Earl of Essex in 1601, just four years before the gunpowder plot. Essex and Cecil had grown up together, but by the 1590s had become bitter rivals at the court of Queen Elizabeth. Essex was everything that Cecil was not, a tall, handsome soldier. He was also sympathetic to the Catholics, which Cecil most certainly was not. 
Queen Elizabeth, already in her 60s, had flirted outrageously with Essex, leaving Cecil to labour away dustily at the dull business of government. At first, Essex had outmanoeuvred Cecil, not only by making his number with Elizabeth, but also by establishing strong contacts with James, who was then King of Scotland, but was already almost certain to succeed Elizabeth to the throne of England. Cecil realised that if James came to the throne with his rival's support, he, Cecil, would probably lose everything. In 1601, Cecil made a decisive move against Essex. He got him appointed to command an army in Ireland. The Earl, afraid he would be away from court for months and that in his absence Cecil would take over, deserted his army and returned without permission to London. The Queen was outraged, not least because Essex turned up unannounced in her bedchamber. Within weeks, he'd been so ostracised, he launched a rising, intending to get rid of his bitter rival Cecil. Essex was supported, among others, by a number of minor Catholic gentry. Now, the rising was a disaster, put down with embarrassing ease by the amateur London militia, which was a kind of home guard. Nearly a hundred of Essex's supporters were imprisoned, and Essex himself was beheaded, along with five of his followers. Robert Cecil understandably believed he'd won. He had now been his own contact with James in Scotland, claiming to be his chief supporter in England, the key to a quiet and orderly succession. But James was a wily politician who treated Cecil with suspicion. He was certainly not going to let Cecil push him around. Now what Gwyneth Hudson discovered was that before, during and after his accession, James went on working with Essex's old friends. He always trusted them more than he trusted Cecil. So from the time that James had become king, Cecil had found himself caught in a horrible trap of his own making. Now he had no choice but to work with the well-connected and influential friends of the charismatic man whose execution he'd just engineered. They were much closer to the new King James than he was, and they all had excellent reason never to forgive him. And among the most important of Essex's faction was Harry Howard, who was a Catholic, or at least very sympathetic to the Catholics. Another was Charles Blunt, who was in a long-term relationship with Essex's sister Penelope. Now, if these names seem familiar, it's because we've just met them sitting right alongside Cecil at the table at Somerset House in May 1604, along with Howard's cousin, negotiating peace with the Spanish. They are now the Earls of Northampton, Nottingham and Devonshire. So it becomes horribly clear why Robert Cecil, even though he carried most of the burden of James's government, as he had Elizabeth's, had only been made a measly baron, and also why he was probably feeling so seriously unrelaxed at the table in the company of these wily soldiers and operators who had the ear of the king, and all too many good reasons to find ways to get rid of him. Add to that, the Cecil was determined at the talks to go on supporting the Dutch Protestants who'd been fighting a 20-year war against the Spanish. The Dutch, after all, were bribing him not to make peace with the Spanish. At the same time, he was taking bribes to do exactly the opposite from the Spanish, sending his mistress along to demand the money from them. Well, no wonder the Spanish were openly muttering that Cecil was an habitual liar, quotes heretical as Satan, a man who'd sell his soul for money. So on the 20th of May, 1604, everything was up for grabs. Cecil's career, conceivably even his life, was on a knife edge. 
Down the road on the London stage, audiences were booing and hissing Richard III, knowing all along that they were really booing and hissing Cecil. The other Englishmen at the table at the peace talks had been working hand in glove with the new King James, outflanking Cecil, and particularly in the case of Harry Howard, negotiating concessions towards the English Catholics. And James was listening to him. And Cecil faced the prospect over the next few weeks of his fellow English negotiators agreeing to Spanish demands for major concessions for the English Catholics. Trying to stop them was going to be an almost impossible task. But when the Treaty of London was finally signed between the English and Spanish on the 18th of August 1604, it gave nothing at all to the English Catholics. Cecil had somehow succeeded in negotiating them away. The Spanish had given in. The other English negotiators now had even more reason to hate him. Two days later, Cecil was raised up the peerage. A little. He became a Viscount. Still a long way from an Earl. All of which helped explain why Cecil would later try to prove that the gunpowder plot had been conceived at a pub just along the road on the very day the peace talks had begun, just when the Catholics should have been most hopeful. So nobody could blame the harsh line Cecil had taken in the negotiations for inciting this act of terrorism. More important, we're beginning to understand one reason why Cecil might have been interested in discovering, or perhaps even inventing, some serious Catholic plot in 1604 or 1605. It would come in very handy to discredit the powerful old Essex men around the King, men like Harry Howard, Earl of Northampton, who'd been so eager to protect the Catholics and who were so much more influential with the King than he was. As we saw at the last podcast, it's exactly what his father, for decades Elizabeth Chief Minister, would have done in his situation. So the story that a Catholic gunpowder plot began at the Duck and Drake on the 20th of May 1604, the very day the Spanish peace talks began just down the road, looks very unlikely to be true. But it fits Chief Minister Robert Cecil's particular requirements very neatly indeed. Uh, all too neatly, you might think. Of course, building up these contexts doesn't prove anything, even if it does all begin to look rather suggestive. But then, of course, there is the other enormous coincidence about the date, 20th of May 1604. The other coincidence that escapes all the accounts on the gunpowder plot. Perhaps the most obvious coincidence of all. We'll have a look at that next time at the History Cafe. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. <laughs> <laughs>